0: Before Andrew Jackson became the seventh president of the United States, he was a major general in the Tennessee militia. During the War of 1812, they say that his troops reached an all-time low in morale. As a result, they began to argue and they began to fight and they began to bicker with each other. It's reported that he called them all together on one occasion when tensions were at their very worst and he said this, gentlemen, let's remember the enemy is over there. Let's stop fighting amongst ourselves. Let's live in such a way so that we can be engaged in the battle with the adversary on the other side. I think that his reminder to his troops is applicable to us in the church. Maybe not specifically this church, but it's certainly a great scriptural reminder for this day. In fact, there are times that I wonder if the Lord Jesus Christ himself doesn't look down from heaven with a sigh as if to say, "Don't forget" Your enemy is over there, not in there. I wonder if sometimes he doesn't want to shout aloud, verbally, support each other, love one another, pray for one another. In fact, those two words, one another, are all through the New Testament. You can't escape it as a reality. Sometimes I think the world looks at the church and doesn't think it's amazing how much they love each other in spite of all their differences. I think sometimes they look at the church and say, it's amazing how judgmental they are. It's amazing how they criticize each other. It's amazing how much they bicker and argue and debate. Something has to change. Because I believe personally that the potency of the gospel is attached to how Christians love one another. Peter was dealing with a group of people who were suffering. In fact, as Peter begins to write this letter in 1 Peter and Chapter 1, he is writing to a group of people who have been scattered throughout the world, Because of Christian persecution. Many of them have lost their businesses. They have lost their homes. They've been separated from family and loved ones. And he's writing this letter to them. And in the midst of everything that they're dealing with. He has the audacity to exhort them in this practical way. I'll begin reading in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22. If you don't have your Bible. The verses will be here on the screen. So that you can know this is God's word. Peter writes. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. Because you have had your souls purified, and because you are obeying the truth, here comes the practical mandate, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Being born again, he writes, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And now he's going to quote from the Old Testament. For all flesh, all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. He's getting really theological with them as he references an Old Testament prophet in those verses. Let me just get really practical. Here's what he's saying. I know that life has thrown you a curveball. I know that everything has changed, and to a great degree, many of you have lost your world. I know that you are fighting on a whole lot of fronts, but I want you to grasp this reality. Your souls have been purified. He's communicating to them as Christians, as followers of Jesus He's saying, I know you are striving to be obedient to the truth. And then when he gets theological, he says, because you have been born again, because you who were born corruptible have now been given new life and are incorruptible, because all of those old things are passed away and you're now a new creature. Seeing all of this is true, love one another. We've been studying for several weeks trying to settle on, trying to mine in the scripture to find what is it that motivates us in this Christian life. What motivates us to consistently stand out as different, to always swim upstream, culturally speaking. What is it that motivates us to strive for holiness when that seems like such a really challenging, hard thing to do? And as we've dug through scripture, we've pulled out different things that motivate us this morning. And I say to you today, one of the things that should motivate you is what surrounds you in this room, the love of the brethren. All of those verses that I read just a moment ago really are all one sentence. There's a primary verb in there around which everything else wraps. And it is that phrase, love one another. Peter is exhorting people who have lost everything to focus on loving each other. It seems a little bit audacious in my mind for him to exhort them to love each other when they have seemingly lost everything. He is telling them to actively choose the demeanor that best communicates their identity in Jesus Christ. If I were to ask you, how can you most effectively communicate to the world that you are a follower of Jesus? I would say the Bible tells us it's how we love each other. Genuinely love the brethren. If we're going to genuinely love each other, it excludes pride. It defeats and demands that we not be controlled by our inner urges and selfish ambition and self-centered grudges, no more prejudice, no more resentment that we carry. Anything that is corrosive to the spirit of love, we remove because the Bible teaches us over and again that unity is vital. Let me be careful to say unity is not uniformity. You don't have to look like me, you don't have to think like me, you don't have to dress like me, you don't have to talk like me, but we do have unity in the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus wants to get your attention just for a second. Jesus Christ wanted to get the attention of the disciples in the upper room. He wanted to teach them about love of the brethren, love for one another. Now you have to think for just a minute, here we are gathered in the upper room in John chapter 13. In the upper room, Jesus is mere hours from being arrested. It was an unfair arrest. It is an illegal trial, and Jesus will be crucified for sins that are not his. On the cusp of all of this treachery, Jesus does something amazing, and it arrests the attention of the disciples. They are literally struck with silence. In John chapter 13 and verse 12, we read this. So after he, that's Jesus, had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, and here's the question that Jesus asks. Know ye what I have done to you? Do you know what I have just done? Stop and be dumbstruck that the creator of the universe... Has just gotten up from his chair, grabbed a towel and a basin, and washed the feet of the disciples. And then Jesus asks them the question, What have I just done to you? Now, how many of you are just like me and simple minded? You'd raise your hand, Oh, 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 I know. Yes, Chris, washed our feet. That's what you've done. And then I would have that moment where Jesus looked and thought, Oh, good try. I'm looking for something deeper, Chris. Oh, well, sorry, I fail. Jesus then comes back. He says to the disciples in verse 13, ye call me master and Lord. And ye say, well, for so I am. If I then your Lord and master have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example. That's what I have done That ye should do as I have done to you. It is stunning what Jesus has just done. In the upper room, hours before the crucifixion, he sits back down in his seat, and the room is silent before him. In fact, Peter has just a moment earlier argued with Jesus and said, Jesus, you're not gonna wash my feet. I can't have my rabbi, my Lord, my master, wash my feet. Jesus goes back with Peter, and he says to him, Peter, you need me to wash your feet, not just your feet, Peter says, but all of me, Jesus, wash all of me. Now they sit in silence, and Jesus says, what did I just do? I don't know. Jesus says, what I've just done is I've given you an example. For if me, your Lord and master, am willing to wash your feet, I say to you, wash one another's feet. Now, it would stand to reason that we would think what Jesus would say in that moment is, now I have washed your feet, now you wash mine. I don't believe there's any Christian in this room listening to me here or online that would have any trouble washing the feet of Jesus. We have an awareness that Jesus shed his blood. He gave his life. He loves us immensely. All of us would be honored to pay that level of obeisance to our Lord and Master Jesus. We would wash his feet. And so would every one of the disciples. But Jesus didn't say, wash my feet. He said, as you've seen me wash your feet, now I say to you, wash each other's feet. Now that's hard. That's not easy. Peter sits there and Jesus says Peter what you have to do is wash the feet of these other disciples and we remember that the disciples did not always get along they were human beings were they not in fact there is a moment in time where James and John get their mother to go to Jesus this was really devious Mom, you have to go to Jesus and you have to ask him when he gets to heaven, when he sets up his kingdom, can I have the seat on the right-hand side and James have the seat on the left-hand side? Can you just see if Jesus won't give us the best seats in the house? So mom goes to Jesus and she says, Lord, I have just a question for you. When you set up your kingdom, would it be okay if my two boys, James and John, after all, they're the standouts of the disciples, everybody knows this. You don't hand out the moniker Sons of Thunder on accident. These boys are go-getters. Can they have the right and the left hand seat? And Jesus, in effect, says, That's not mine to give. That's my Father's in heaven. The other disciples hear that their mom has just asked for them to have the best seat, and they are angry at James and John. You say, Well, they're probably angry with James and John because they can't believe they're dominated by that conceit and pride. Wrong. They're angry with them because they think, You get that seat? I'm Peter. Of course I get the right-hand seat. And then Andrew's thinking to himself, well, I brought you to Jesus. I probably should have the right seat. You get the left seat. And they're argumentative. And what Jesus has just said is world-altering. I'm not saying wash my feet back. I'm telling you who look at each other at times with disdain and realize that you're not, and they're not the most lovable, you have to wash their feet too. And when you struggle with Washing someone else's feet, remember that I washed yours. Wouldn't it be easy if the world was always just lovable people? If everybody got along and everybody was likable? Wouldn't it be great if everybody was just like you? I heard a pastor who said this, and it has stuck with me. He said, I'm convinced that everybody on earth except me and my wife are weird, and I worry about her sometimes. That's how all of us live, isn't it? We've kind of got it figured out and we put up with everybody else. The unity that Christ expects and demands within the body is that we wash one another's feet. In fact, he'll come back in, in just a little bit in John 13 and he says something stunning. He says this in John 13, 34, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. As I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Get this. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. Here's how the whole world is going to know you're one of mine. Love each other. It's easy to love Jesus back. It's not so easy to love each other back. But that's how you'll know. That's how they'll know your mind, he says. Jesus is praying in John chapter 17. It is stunning to read John chapter 17. The Holy Spirit has allowed us in John chapter 17 to listen in on Jesus' pray. It is amazing to hear what Jesus prays in John chapter 17 and verse 20. Jesus is praying. Listen now, here's what he says. Neither pray I for these alone. I'm not just praying for these that are here with me, Jesus says, but for them also which shall believe on me Through their word. That's us, by the way. That's Jesus praying for us. And then he says in verse 21, That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. If you and I had to settle on the key word in that segment of verses, in that portion of Jesus' prayer, it would be the word one. One, one, one. And what Jesus just said in John 17, 20, 21, 22, and 23 is exactly this. The potency of the gospel is connected to our capacity to love one another. Have you ever wondered why the world mocks the truth? looks at the gospel as an impractical thing. They don't look at the gospel as impotent because it's impotent. They don't view the gospel as impractical because it's not life-changing. They look at it as impotent and impractical because we do not show it out as we should. In the Old Testament, God was preparing to judge Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone. And for everybody that showed up at a Baptist church and thought, I gotta have fire and brimstone preaching, There it is. Sodom and Gomorrah were going to get fire and brimstone. And God tells Lot, you got to get your family out of here. And Lot goes into his children and their spouses. And he says to them, we've got to get out of here. God is going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone. And his own children, his family that is closest to him, laugh at him and they think he is pulling a prank. They think he's telling them a joke. Why would they think that he was telling them a joke when really he was delivering to them the life-saving truth? They thought it was a joke because his entire life prior to that message would indicate to them that he didn't care one bit about God. That he didn't care one bit about what God thought. And so when he tried to step up and proclaim the truth, it was impotent and seen as impractical. And I say to you, the reason that the church struggles to have an impact in this world is not because the gospel doesn't work, not because it is impractical or impotent, but because we don't love each other like we should. A perfectly fit together unit. Paul was writing to the believers at Philippi. He was writing this letter. They were struggling with getting along. And so he says to them in Philippians 2, 3, Let nothing, let not one thing be done through strife or vainglory, but everything that is done, lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. You realize that church was God's idea? that Jesus Christ shed his blood for the church. If it's his church, it's gotta be done his way. If it's gotta be done his way, that means it's not being done our way, which communicates to me, we should stop looking for credit. We should stop looking for what we can get out of it or how we can get things done more to our liking or more our way. I wonder how many relationships could be repaired if these simple principles were applied. Unity matters to the Lord. Love one another. That's what Jesus said. We wouldn't have to preach anymore and we've mined out some truth from Scripture. We are going to preach more, but you already knew that. Why do I need unity? Why would I go to Peter's letter and listen in on his practical pep talk for these believers? Here's what he says. You have been commanded to love. This isn't for the elite level Christian. This isn't for the people who have figured things out. This is for every believer. Remember, he was writing to hurting people. And he's already told them, here's why you should love each other. Because your hearts have been purified by the truth of the word. Because you are trying to obey the word of God. And here's another reason you should love each other. Because your goal is to live life without hypocrisy. Do you realize the church is dominated by hypocrisy? You're here and I'm here, which means there's a hypocrite here. And I don't mean it's one or the other. I mean it's both of us. When you study out the etymology of hypocrisy, you settle on a word that communicates that old mask and the mask you would hold up in front of your face in an old drama and one would have a smile and one would have a frown. And when I held the mask up in front of my face, I might be happy under the mask, but I'm telling you, look at my mask, I'm sad. Or I might be sad under the mask, but I'd hold it with a smile and I'd say, look at my face. I'm happy. You don't know what's going on behind the mask. I'm telling you what I want you to think about me. That's what hypocrisy communicates. And here's what happens in the church. All of us go through life with a mask on. Every one of us. It is something that we struggle against all the time. And what Peter says in here is he says, love the brethren. And get this phrase, with a pure heart, fervently sincerely, without any mask on, love each other. Even the individual that it's really, really, really hard to love them. That means that you don't time your walk from the car to the church when everything's gotten started so you don't have to interact with anybody. I see you. I am you. I know how you work. That means you don't shake somebody's hand and say, how are you? It's great to see you. And on the inside you think, oh, I don't want to talk to you or see you. You don't walk in and think, please, God, don't let them sit in my section or sit near me. Please, God, don't let the pastor notice me. He's going to come over here and fake kindness. Yep. Going to act like he's pumped I'm here. Sure. What he is saying is stop with all of that and with a pure heart, fervently love each other because your souls have been purified and because you're striving to obey the truth. Do this without any hypocrisy at all and do it fervently. When you study out the word fervently, it is incredibly intriguing. You dig into the Greek. You know what it means? Fervently. I tried really hard. That's what it means. Anybody struggle with fervently? Because I can't go any deeper than that. Really get after it. Really strive for it. It's a beautiful thing and it's not Really, the easiest. It's not super easy. One author said this, instead of struggling with the thought, I wonder why God is allowing that other person to bother me or upset me or hurt me. He said, think instead, God is using that other person to sanctify me. Well, that's easy, isn't it? Somebody who speaks against you, somebody who works against you, and your first thought is, you know, God, thank you for them. I can tell that you're using them to mature me spiritually and to sanctify me. I'm going to look them up. I hope they're nasty and mean today. I need more sanctification. Love one another with a pure heart fervently. Stop faking it. That's what he's driving at. Another author said this. Maybe you're thinking that would really stretch me to think that way. Peter would agree. He was digging in the language and he said, the very background of this word is the world of athletics. You could woodenly translate it or understand it. Be stretched out in love. How many of you are flexible? Right. The older you get, how many of you realize the more flexible you become? You're like, man, I am so limber. I pop up. Nothing bothers me. I make noise when I get down and I'm only 45. I get down and I think, I got to get back up. That's going to be a chore. Something's going to snap. Something's going to hurt when I get back up. I don't like that. I don't, I don't stretch real well. I'm not super flexible. But when it comes to this kind of love, what Peter is saying is this. There's going to come a point where you think, I can't. I can't love them. And he says, and when you reach that point, you stretch yourself out in love and do it anyway. And if you're really struggling with stretching out to love that person, don't ever forget that Jesus, who was perfect and sinless, Loved you. You say, do you mean there's something that stretches the love of Jesus? Nothing stretches the love of Jesus. It's that immense. But some stretch our love. There's just some people that we don't want to naturally love. Let me say this to you. If there is no one in your life that stretches your capacity to love them, then you are probably not ministering. You're probably trapped in some comfort zone. You're probably in what some churches might call a clique, a tightly knit friend group that only supports your agenda and only reinforces your own proper and good view of yourself. If no one is stretching you to love them, you are not ministering because if you're going to do true ministry, someone's going to stretch you to love them. You say, Pastor, you sound like you're speaking from experience. hundred percent. I stretch people to love me. You at times stretch others to love you. Why would we love each other? Unity matters to the Lord Jesus Christ and we're family. Have you ever realized that all of us are adopted? Peter said in verse 23, being born again. We've all been born once. And Peter says, I'm talking to people who've been born again. That means this, I don't care what color you are, I don't care where you come from, I don't care where you were born, I don't care what your education level is, I don't care how much money you have, all of us have been adopted. You want to talk about going back to the starting point of common ground, all of us have been adopted into the family. He then says this, we also all take instruction from the same Same source. In verses 24 and 25, he backs up and he uses an old testament passage of scripture. And then he concludes it by saying, And this is the word by the which the gospel is preached unto you. He is saying, Not only are we all family in the sense that we've all been adopted, every one of us takes our instruction from the same source. There's no guru, there's nobody that has it more figured out. We all go back to the word of God. And then when he jumps into chapter two, he says this: We all have the same struggles. We look around and sometimes we feel like every time I come to church I struggle because it seems to me like everybody else has it figured out. I will tell you this, you have not met one person on this campus who has everything figured out, you included. You say, no, that one person, I watched them. Every kid's hair was combed. Every one of them had a little Bible and I swear they all walked in a straight line and nobody misbehaved. They've got it all figured out. No, they don't. And you don't either. And I don't either. One of the things that defeats the potency of the gospel, perhaps more than any other, is the pretense we live with when we arrive at church. Condescension of self-righteousness does more to damage the potency of the gospel of Jesus Christ than perhaps anything else. It's okay to not be okay all the time. It's okay to acknowledge that you, as well as everyone else, are struggling to survive and advance, spiritually speaking. That's why I don't like arriving at church and having people try to pump me up. Hey, are you feeling great today? No. Smile when you sing this one out. I don't want to. Smile now. You're not smiling. Smile like you mean it. I don't mean it. I don't care. I don't want to sing right now. You're asking me to rise to an occasion that I cannot rise to. Well, if you love Jesus, you'll smile. Please. Where? Where? If you love Jesus, you're going to sing this one out like you mean it because we all have to appear like we got it all together all the time. That's why I'm here, man. Hit me over the head with the word of God. I may, by the time I walk to the car, think I should probably smile. I should probably change. Listen, we fake it and we send a message to other people that if you're going to make it here, you better have everything figured out when in reality, all of us struggle with the same sins. Peter writes this in verse 1 of chapter 2. Laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings. What in the world are those things? Malice, sins that injure and hurt others. Guile, two-faced, deceptive, trying to manipulate things to attain your own end or hidden agenda hypocrisy, we know it's to play a part, envy, hidden resentment, evil speaking, slander, rumor, passing on bad information. Peter says, listen, all of that is corrosive to true love. Cut it out. And you're all struggling with it because no one matters more to us than us. No one matters more to you than you and no one matters more to me than me. And it is a struggle that we are all engaged in. Stop acting like You are on the lower level of spirituality. We all are on the lower level of spirituality. Every one of us is battling something in some regard. Others have maybe learned how to modify their external behavior better than you, and you just show that you really aren't great, and they hide that they really aren't great, but the fact is we're all struggling with the same thing. And then simply this in verse two of chapter two, as newborn babes, he writes, Desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. If so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Now, Peter's telling us how to get to the place where we love one another with a pure heart fervently. And he says, If so be, you have learned that the Lord is gracious. You should, as a newborn babe, desire the sincere milk of the word. It's worth noticing that he does not command in those verses that we read the word of God. He does not command that we study the word of God, that we teach the word of God, that we memorize the word of God. He brings us all the way back to this basic starting point and he says, do you even desire the word of God? Like a newborn babe, how many of you have ever been around a hungry baby? It is an unpleasant experience. Nothing you can do. That child that is hungry will only be silenced when that desire for milk is satiated. A child who is hungry and is being deprived milk will cry aloud, right? Really loud. Others are more equipped with lungs and vocal cords. Really loud. They will do so continuously. They will do so until... That need is satiated. And what Peter is saying plainly is this Do you even desire? to have the word of God so that you can grow. I'm not telling you you gotta teach it, memorize it, meditate on it, study it. You gotta get to the point where you desire it like a baby. You have to desire to have it. You have to long for it. You have to cry aloud for it. You have to ceaselessly pursue it until you are satiated by it. Our lives should be saturated by the word of God. That child who will cry unrelentingly and unforgivingly a believer should do the same. You and I should never outgrow a desire, a craving for spiritual truth. Why do we meet together? Because one another assembles in this place. Why do we meet together? Because we have a desire for the word of God so that what? We might grow up. Unity matters to God. It should matter to us. Why? Because we have been commanded to love each other. You don't just wash the feet of the people who don't stink. That means on occasion you're going to come across a really stinky pair of feet. Wash them anyway. Peter's feet were washed by Jesus, right? And as Jesus washed the feet of Peter, he had to think in his mind, in just a few hours, these feet are going to go into those sandals, and those sandals are going to stand out on that porch, and I am going to be denied, and yet I wash his feet. James and John are bucking for the best seats in the kingdom and I wash their feet. He knew that Thomas was gonna go, I don't believe until you show me those scars and you let me take a look at your side and then I'll buy in. After everything that I've done, you're still gonna ask for some visible, tangible evidence. What is it gonna take? He washed his feet. And I am saying to you, listen, you're gonna encounter people in your life that are just hard to love, may not always be hard to love. They just might have a stinky feet season, and you got to love them anyways. I'm going to tell him my son. My son plays high school football. If you open his backpack, you will not question whether or not he plays high school football. I mean, your face melts. It's <laughs> the wet, the the mold. It's a terrible thing. I'll apologize to him later. I don't use my family and personal illustrations ever because I grew up as a pastor's kid. I hate it. But listen, it's that pungent. It's made it into a Sunday morning message. But it's not always that way. It's not always like that. But there's a moment where it's like that. There's a pair of shoes that's like that. And I'm saying to you, listen, not everybody's always got rotten, stinky feet, but there are going to be times where they do. And you can't decide in that moment, I'm out. Man, your feet stink today. Wash the stinky ones too. He said, well, you know what? I have this circle of friends around me. I think what Peter was talking about was, you know, it's cool to just love on those that are like you. It's okay because that's your comfort zone. You wash their feet. He said, I don't care if they're complete strangers until you get to the place where you love each other like Jesus loves you, you're not doing it right. And if nobody's stretching your capacity to love, you're not ministering at all. You're living in some bubble in some fake universe that you've created for yourself. There should be some stinky feet around you there are, pastor, if there are, wash them. Love the unlovely. That's what Jesus did for you. How in the world are we ever going to make an impact in this world if we cannot minister to each other? How will the gospel ever be seen as potent and practical if everything that we do is full of strife and vain glory, selfish ambition? We're not gonna, who cares who gets the credit? Who cares whose name's on the sign? Who cares who gets the pat on the back? Who cares who gets the most attention? Who cares who sits in the front row? Best seats in the house. Thank you. There's four of you up here. Thank you. Who cares? Who cares what you want? Who cares what you're getting out of it? Who cares what it does for you? What does it do for others and what does it do for Jesus? And until we're there, the gospel will be seen as impotent and impractical. Would you please, for just a moment, bow your heads, close your eyes thanks for listening this week to the graceway baptist church podcast for more information about our church and our ministries head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org we are a church located in south charlotte we are growing and our ministries are doing big things for christ if you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing Email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.